Good morning, Emmanuel. Uh, if you'd open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 6, we have the privilege of getting to continue in our um, study of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' greatest and most famous sermon. You'll find uh, we're in the middle of it in Matthew chapter 6. And uh, I want to read the passage we studied the last two weeks and then go on from there because the passage we studied the last two weeks and this week's passage are very connected. It's really important that we see uh, that Jesus calls for us to be a people who invest our money for the advance of his kingdom, for us to be a people who uh, lay up our treasures in heaven, who only serve God and not money, is deeply tied to the fight against anxiety. It's deeply tied to the fight against anxiety. Giving everything you've got to Jesus will make you nervous, and only Jesus can settle your heart so that you can um, follow him in peace. The Lord Jesus Christ, who died and rose from the dead, spoke these words during his earthly ministry. Matthew chapter 6, verse 19. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Therefore I tell you, therefore, there's the connection between what we're speaking about last week's and this week. Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies in the field, of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon, in all his glory. Even Solomon was not arrayed like one of these. 
But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you? Oh, you of little faith. Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things. Your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow. For tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Uh, one thing I noticed as I read that passage that I didn't think about as preparing or didn't include in the sermon that I just maybe point out to you is, notice that for Jesus, it's as important as to be not like a Gentile as it is to be not like a Pharisee. He has spent, he's been telling us not to be like the Pharisees and the hypocrites in terms of our fasting, our praying, and our giving. And people in our generation are, yeah, we don't want to be Pharisees. That's a good one. It's equally important that we not be like the Gentiles, that we be a distinct people, a distinct from the religious hypocrites, but also distinct from the worldly idolaters. Jesus is doing something extremely different in his church. Father, we come before you. We wanna ask you that you would make us a people just like Jesus, different than the Jews, different than the Gentiles. A third race, as the early church used to call themselves. A people set apart. Or would you simply make Emmanuel, make your church different just by listening to you, just by the incredible power of being transformed by your word. We pray and ask that you would make us all ears and that you would change us from one degree of glory to another as we simply hear your marvelous word. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. No less than five times our passage mentions anxiety, or more specifically, being anxious. Not every passage in the Bible strikes us as immediately relevant, but this one sure does. We all deal with anxiety. Anxiety is one of the most universal human experiences. We're, we all worry. We all know what it's like to not just be concerned about a situation, but to be unduly concerned about a situation. To be fretful, to be nervous, to sometimes even feel attacked by panic. Anxiety is not just a universal experience, it's, it's a pretty diverse experience. There's a lot of different ways to experience anxiety. Uh, the Baker Encyclopedia of Psychology and Counseling names a bunch of the emotions that are symptoms of anxiety. Vague uneasiness, 
mild agitation, racing thoughts, impaired sleep, and a hard time calming down. And anxiety can happen in all kinds of situations. Children often experience it first when they're separated in some traumatic moment from their parents. Some people feel fear and anxiety when they're in places where they feel unsafe. Others feel their heart racing when they're in social settings. Some of you, just the thought of meeting with 600 people on a Sunday morning is enough to make you a little nervous, quite anxious. Anxiety tempts each one of us in different times. Sometimes just the jitters before a test. Other times the fear of death in a dangerous situation. Right over to breakdowns under the strains of work that can shut us down completely. Leave us in a fetal position in bed. It's interesting. Everyone knows the experience of anxiety. I don't need to do a lot of sort of probing to get you to remember what it's like to feel anxious. But there's actually a tremendous amount of confusion about what anxiety is. We all know the experience of anxiety. We're hard pressed in our day to actually define it. What is anxiety? How would you define anxiety? Uh, psychologist A.V. Rainwater points out that since Sigmund Freud and the dawn of modern psychology, anxiety has been looked at as a thing. Through Freud, the idea crystallized that, idea, that anxiety is, is an entity, a thing, a condition. If you've even taken Psychology 101 in college, you know a lot has happened in the study of psychology since Freud, but his idea is still very dominant at the popular level today. You hear it all the time. We hear people talk about having anxiety. It's something you have. It's a thing, an entity. We hear of people being diagnosed. Perhaps you've been diagnosed with anxiety or people being treated for anxiety. Anxiety for most people is a thing, a condition, a disease, a mental health diagnosis. I need to tell you that Jesus has a very different take on anxiety. He looks at anxiety very differently than the way that is dominant in our culture today. Jesus does not view anxiety as a thing you have, but as an action you do. Anxiety is something that you do in your soul. It's a choice you make about how to deal with the things that make you feel insecure or threatening in this life. And Jesus does not view um, anxiety as a neutral thing, but as a sinful choice. Jesus treats anxiety as a sin. Anxiety is not something we're called to treat so much as something we're called to repent of. And I'm not denying that some people may have physical conditions that increase our tendency towards anxiety. I'm not denying that some people have been exposed to such vulnerable and dangerous situations they will often have a greater struggle with anxiety. But I am saying that anxiety is not something you have, it's something you do. 
Listen to the way Jesus speaks about anxiety in our passage. Three times he says the identical thing. He tells us in verse 25, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. That's not the way you speak to a person with a condition. You don't tell them to stop it. In verse 31 he says, Therefore do not be anxious. In verse 34, he says, do not be anxious about tomorrow. Jesus treats anxiety not as something in us that must be treated, but as something we do that must be stopped. This, of course, is consistent with the teaching of the whole New Testament. The whole New Testament is a place where God forbids anxiety as a sin we commit, not as a condition we're in. The Apostle Paul says, do not be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. And I'm supposed to get here later, but I can't resist getting here now. Um, the benefit of seeing anxiety as a sin rather than a state, is it can be conquered. It can be dealt with. It can actually be cured. You can actually rise above being dominated by anxiety. If anxiety is who you are, good luck. But if anxiety is something you do, then there's great hope that God can deal with the wrong things you do. The Apostle Peter continues that teaching that forbids anxiety and calls us to peace. He he actually connects anxiety to pride. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so at the proper time he may exalt you. How do I humble myself, Peter? Casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Anxiety in the Bible is a sin we're called to repent of, turn away from, and stop. Now, I know for many of us, this will be shocking and even quite concerning. It's always hard when we're trying to deal with a problem that we experience in our lives, and someone comes along and says, you're looking at your problem the wrong way. Not only are you looking at your problem the wrong way, or dealing with your problem wrongly, but you're actually diagnosing the problem the wrong way as well. And I'm sure many here will have that experience this morning. When I say, oh, we all experience anxiety, we mild agitation, racing thoughts, sometimes panic, we know these symptoms, all of us, to one degree or another. But when I say that those problems are symptoms of sin, not primarily symptoms of a psychological condition, that can be quite disorienting. So let me say a little bit more about that. And if you're someone who's like, well, this isn't an issue for me, but it sure is an issue for the people I talk about. Well, listen carefully, because this is one of the areas where where the culture has radically reshaped something God calls a sin into something that culture reads in its own lens, which is simply a bodily ailment. First of all, as I try to make a few clarifications, let me repeat what I said earlier, that I'm not denying that certain physical conditions or life experiences could greatly increase our tendency towards anxiety. That's true. 
But I am saying that even there, we must deal with anxiety as Jesus does, as a sin, an act of disobedience, and an act that is keeping us from God's best, God's peace and joy. Secondly, let me remind you that our Christian lives, in our Christian lives, part of maturing in the Christian life, part of learning to be more like Jesus is simply learning to name the experiences of our lives the way Jesus names them. From the dawn of humanity, Adam was a namer. He was one called to name. And it's a marvelous act in our growth and grace simply to name the world around us the way it ought to be named. We must see abortion as murder rather than a procedure or a right. We must see sodomy as a sinful act rather than seeing homosexuality as something someone is. We must learn to call shacking up fornication and extramarital affairs are best called adultery. And sometimes it's, learn, it's good to learn that sharing is best called gossip or slander. The wonderful circumstances of our lives are not really best labeled luck, but providence. And simply learning to name the world as it is, well, it's one of the ways we cultivate a good eye. It's one of the ways we begin to see the world rightly and deal with it as the way God intends. Learning to name the way God names the world is a critical part of growing in a Christian. And the modern world sees man almost exclusively as a physical being. Problems are purely physical. And we see the cure for our problems in various physical and mental therapies. Now to be sure, we have many merely physical problems. We, have phys we, we can benefit from physical and mental therapies, but we are not just physical beings. We are physical and spiritual beings made in the image of God. The mental states we're in are not just physical. The attitudes we have are not just chemical reactions happening in the meat machine that is us. No, the way we think and feel is a spiritual matter. We need to learn to think about our thoughts as pleasing to God or displeasing to God, as sinful or righteous, as obedient or rebellious. And when we view everything merely in terms of sort of what's happening chemically in our minds, we miss out on the massive thrust of the scriptures in dealing with our hearts. Our thoughts and attitudes are under God's gaze and he cares what we think about. And so we must understand anxiety the way he understands anxiety. It's something to be run from like lust. It's something to be forsaken like drunkenness. It's something to be abandoned like all sin. The biblical message is that Jesus came, this is why this is good news, the biblical good news is that Jesus came to earth to live the perfect life that anxious, fretful people like us don't live. He lived a life of perfect obedience and died for us. And when we believe in him, he reconciles us to God. And when we're reconciled to God, some of the most dominant causes of anxiety are dealt with. Guilt, gone, because Jesus paid it all. Fear of death, a mighty blow, because now there's no need to fear death, because when you die, you go to be with God. 
And our sense of insecurity at not knowing who we are begins to be washed away because we are children of the living God. And on top of that, our anxiety is calm about caring for ourselves because we have a heavenly Father who is orchestrating everything that happens on the planet to make sure we get our daily bread and our clothing. He's constantly caring for us. And so really the ultimate cure for anxiety comes from the gospel of Christ. So there's hope in thinking about anxiety as a sin. Not immediate hope, it's always nicer to have someone say, you have a condition, you're like, oh, I got a condition, and then, and then you move on from there. But amazingly, the world's ability to treat that condition is extremely limited, has intense and often very negative side effects, and God's way of dealing with anxiety is so much better and so much more effective. And so what I wanna do this morning is I wanna look at it. What does Jesus do to help Christians deal with anxiety? What does he do to help us deal with anxiety? And I wanna give you three things. He gets specific. He gets very specific. Anxiety is not best dealt with as a mysterious fog clouding your life. It's dealt with in specifics. And then secondly, he gets very practical. We're gonna really get down to, you should go for a walk if you're dealing with anxiety. You should take up bird watching. And the third, he gets deeply theological. This is how he fights anxiety. Being specific, getting practical, and getting theological. Let's first notice how he gets specific. He begins by focusing on the details. Notice it. Verse 25, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Notice that Jesus highlights the two primary issues we worry about. Our life, my very existence, and my body. That's what I'm worried about. I'm worried about my life, and I'm worried about my body. The way people perceive my body, the way I experience my body, uh, you, you name it. The pleasures I get in my body, I'm worried about them. And he deals with those there. After highlighting our life and our body, he highlights what we focus on to care for our lives and our bodies. With our lives, we worry about what we're gonna eat and what we're gonna drink. Will it be organic enough? Will, it be, will the food be prepared after the apocalypse comes? What, what will happen with my life? Will I have food and will I have drink for my body as long as I could possibly need it? And if preferable, I'd like to drink something better than water most of the days of my life. Maybe something with a hint or an infusion of this or that. And then on top of that, I deal with my body what my body will have and what clothing I will wear. Notice that Jesus speaks of these issues as specifically Gentile concerns. Now, I don't mean that Christians don't wear clothes and that Christians don't eat meals, but we're talking about that obsessive focus on the physical, that obsessive focus on the worldly, Merely beyond just getting on some nice clothes and eating a meal, but I'm just constantly thinking about how I'm going to eat, what I'm going to drink, how I'm going to be dressed all the time. Jesus speaks of these as Gentile, 
What sh- verse 31, therefore do not be anxious saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things and your heavenly father knows you need them. Jesus knew that the people of his day, most of whom were poor, were concerned about their daily bread and their clothing. And these concerns for food and clothing are not any less in our very wealthy culture. Modern marketing is dominated by what you're gonna eat and drink. So I thought to myself, this would be a good time to stop your study, Ryan, and look at Facebook for a second and check out what the algorithm shows you because there's guaranteed to be an illustration there because if the Facebook algorithm knows that I'm all about my life and my body and the marketers know that's where I wanna put my money, then they will be there for me and they did not disappoint. (laughs) They did not disappoint. I took a look and the first ad was for flex tech suits that would make me look both sophisticated and athletic. No easy feat. (laughs) Uh, Then there would be, there's a product that would help me stop snoring. A machine that would help me work out that's both easy and affordable. A high powered flashlight to keep me safe in dangerous situations. A man girdle to keep me looking trim even when I'm not. (laughs) I went over to YouTube, there were high tech pants that would make me ready for everything. And a streaming service that would keep me entertained and after that the sky was the limit. Comedians, musicians, sports highlights, all for eternity. It almost makes you anxious about missing out. All of it produces anxiety that you've got to get in on it, and it promises it will relieve your anxiety. Jesus got specific. I think there's wisdom in Jesus' approach. I I need to go off a little rabbit trail, but you know what ruined the Narnia movies? A number of years ago, they started releasing Narnia movies, right? And uh, the first one, The Lion, the Witch, Word, was, was, was brilliant. It was wonderful. The second one was pretty good. And the third one, I think it was Prince Caspian, uh, was, was horrible. And you know why it was horrible? It was, because it was horrible because the enemy was green fog. It wasn't a bad king. It wasn't a wicked witch. It was green fog. And no one can get really excited watching a movie where the bad guy is the green fog. And yet that's how we often treat anxiety. It's a dark fog. And it's, you talk to people, how are you doing? I'm feeling anxious. But anxiety is always rooted in how you're thinking about things, stuff, real issue. Why should I go to man girdle? Because I don't like looking fat. I don't like that. Why, why should I wear a flex suit? Because I want to look both sophisticated and athletic. I don't like looking other ways. Now you can see I resisted temptation this morning. But anyway. But the point is you've got to trace what am I, what am I wanting and why am I wanting it? What fear of death, what fear of lack of comfort, What fear of lack of pleasure is driving me? You need to put your finger on it. You need to ask what's happening. 
You maybe need to say even to some other folks, hey, I'm feeling nervous. I can't really diagnose why it is I'm feeling nervous and help get some Christian friends who would help you understand. Why do I always try to act like the smartest person in the room? Why am I anxious about that? Why does that annoy so many people? Why are you doing that? You want to think about that kind of anxiety at that kind of level. Now, that's painful, but it puts you in this place. When you start to see things in detail, you can actually start confessing them and repenting of them and changing. And that is very liberating. That's a path to peace. Don't go on with a sense of mild discomfort in your soul. You were meant to enjoy perfect peace that passes all understanding. You were meant to be the kind of person who, even if they're about to kill you, has perfect peace. And so you need to ask, what's making me nervous? Why am I anxious? What's occupying my mental space? What's making me fearful? And how do I repent of it and trust God to provide for me in whatever need I have? Get specific. The second thing in fighting anxiety is get practical. Get very practical. And by going, being practical, I literally mean going for a walk and looking at birds and picking up flowers and looking at them. This weekend when the elders and deacons were gathered for annual retreat, and occasionally when I was talking about this upcoming sermon, I mentioned that my basic point was this that Jesus cultivates a generosity with our money and kills anxiety by telling people to become bird watchers and to stop and smell the flowers, which is precisely what this passage says. Look at the birds of the air. Verse 26, look at them. And then it says later on, consider, use your mental energy for the lilies of the field. Now most of us would, you know, I got problems in my life and they're not gonna be fixed by just picking up a lily. You think you're more important than you really are. You think you're a little more sophisticated than you really are. You would do well to pick up a flower and stare at it for a protracted period of time. I was reading an outline of this passage and I think the commentator divided the passage up well and then blew it when it came to labeling the parts of the passage. Here's what I mean. So the commentator said, look, in verse 25, we have the basic command. Do not be anxious about your life. And then he said, in verses 26 through 30, we have two illustrations. The illustrations of the birds and the illustration of the lilies. That's wrong. The birds and the lilies are not illustrations. They're commands. They're commands. You are commanded to go look at the birds that God's been putting in front of your face every day since you were born. You're commanded to go look at them. And then you're commanded to pick up some flowers and to stare at them and to stare at them long enough that you could say, I considered that flower. Past tense. And we're just too spiritual for that, aren't we? When I was a brand new Christian, oh, I was a spiritual guy, I tell you that. Uh, and uh, I was driving across the, the Burlington Skyway, uh, this amazing one and a half mile long bridge across part of Lake Ontario, Hamilton, Ontario, Canada. And I was you know, driving and trying to think about Jesus and the Bible. And Christy was looking at this lake and this amazing bridge and just 
floored by all of it. And she said, look, look. And I was kind of irritated, like, man, I'm doing spiritual stuff here. And thinking, <laughs> thinking about God. And, and, uh, and, and she's looking at me like, what is wrong with you? Like, you are surrounded by glory, and you won't even take a look. And I hope that no one here will be as stupid and as idiotic and as foolish and as unspiritual as I was that day. God didn't just write the Bible. He spoke creation. Theologians have sometimes called creation God's first book. The Bible is built on the foundation of God's work and word in the world, in what you can see. And he wants you to spend part of your life staring at birds. And you think, I'm a nervous mess. You know, I'm afraid of all kinds of things. I'm afraid my felt's gonna fail. I'm afraid I'm gonna die. I'm afraid my husband's gonna cheat on me if I gain weight. Like, I'm just afraid of all kinds of things. And God says the cure is to get out on the balcony and stare at the electrical line until there are birds on it and to stare long enough so that you can see them eat. Or to go to, we live in a city where you can be dirt poor and we're surrounded by the most amazing parks. Get into them and walk around until you see birds eating. The starlings catching the flies off the water in McNeil Lake. The uh, blue herons catching fish in the water of our city. Uh, you want to see the little sparrows grabbing the grains on the ground. Or we had an incident recently where this deadly smell started coming from behind our house. A deer had gone and died in the woods behind our house. And so the turkey vultures decided they would start landing on our house and made our house like their, like their, their staging grounds. <laughs> so they could go in and get on the deer. And I'm thinking, man, the turkey vultures, they're being fed by God too. And I actually found it a little harder to believe the next verse. Am I not more important than they? It's hard to feel the importance of a turkey vulture, isn't it? But we are made in the image of God. And God will care for us. So we should look at the trillium and the bluebell and the bloodroot and the daffodils and the tulips and the rose bushes and the flowering trees of our city. And we should recognize that if we raise our kids glued to screens, we will make them people of deep, deep anxiety. And does it surprise us that a culture that's so sedentary, so indoors, and so divorced from nature is having astronomical health crisis amounts of anxiety, and suicide. Now, I know I sounded like a total bumpkin earlier when I said that the world's diagnosis of anxiety is dead wrong and Jesus is dead right, but let me just stop for a second and prove that I'm not a total pre-scientific noob and quote to you from an article that makes me sound very smart, a systematic review and meta-analysis of Nature Walk as an intervention for anxiety and depression. This comes from the National Library of Medicine, and it reports after pages and pages of data 
this amazing little fact. Quote, nature walk, that just sounds so pretentious, right? You can't just call it going for a walk. No. Nature walk effectively improves mental health, positively impacting depression and anxiety. Another article was out today saying jogging twice a week as proven to be as effective as antidepressants. Beloved, we should trust that our Lord knows how to calm and quiet the soul. And we should be willing to get outside long enough to look at the birds and notice how they're eating. They're doing quite well. And we should notice the flowers. They're quite intricate. And recognize that all of this is a mark of how well God cares for us. Which brings me to the last point. We're not just to be practical, but theological. Notice that once Jesus retunes us and says, hey, don't just read your Bible, go check out some birds. Uh, don't just go to church. Go look at some flowers, consider them, think about them. After he does that, he says, now, now you don't just need to get out in their midst, you need to actually think about them theologically. You need to think about them theologically. So here's how he, he does that. He teaches us how to do it. He says, look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns. Now this is what makes us nervous in daily life. If we're not accumulating enough stuff that the barns are getting full, we get anxious. Right? If the 401k and the passive investments and whatever working and they're bringing in the stuff, we're good, we feel fine. But if we can't get enough stuff in our barns, we start getting nervous. So Jesus used the birds as an example. Hey look, how are they doing? You ever see a, thank goodness, turkey vultures don't have barns, wouldn't that be horrible? Like any, any, you don't see any bird with a personal savings? Okay, they're living on a day-to-day -day basis. And the, our heavenly Father feeds them. Now here's something that'll smack an environmentalist in the eye. Are you not of more value than they? Not all species are of equal value. Let me say that again. Not all species are of equal value. And while human beings who are meant to rule over the world shouldn't be steamrolling other species and not caring when something goes extinct, the fact is, if people need to survive and we need to build houses for them and that eliminates one particular kind of fox in Southern California, I don't like it, but people are more important. People are more important. And again, I'm not arguing for you kind of just, like, just willy-nilly destroying the planet or anything like that. I'm just saying that the beings made in the image of God are more important than the other beings on the planet. And we're supposed to look at how well he cares for the lesser beings. How he feeds them. They're always fed. And go, and he's not going to take care of me, the one he died on the cross to save? The Father sent the Son to die on the cross for a sinner like me, and here are these birds getting a meal all the time. He will care for me. And then flowers. I mean, come on. John Calvin said, 
you could not avoid pleasure if you tried in this world. God has made all these flowers and these intricate, delicate shapes and colors and textures, lilies and roses and carnations, you name it. It's just this beautiful, colored intricacy. He says, listen, my greatest king in all the history of the world, King Solomon, he never, ever wore anything like an orchid. And you are more important than grass and flowers that get burned up after they bloom. Your value as a human being is God's guarantee to you that he will take better care of you than all the beings in the world, including the flowers. Our Father will provide for you. Now I can testify. Through my adult life, I have made good money on the oil rigs. I've lived below the poverty line literally in the early days of ministry. I've lived in a home that belonged to someone else, and I've lived in my own home. I've had savings, and more than once we've had debt. And through it all, we've been fed, and we have been clothed. My wife, myself, all of our children. Our Heavenly Father has fed and clothed all of us to this very day. Think of God's care for his children. We need to get out to a park and onto the deck and look around and think about that theologically as a cure for anxiety. Well, I'm gonna close with an application regarding money again. I'm gonna close with an application regarding money again. The topic of money is on my mind for two reasons. One, uh, it's budgeting season here at Emmanuel. Yesterday morning, the elders and deacons finalized the budget that we'll present to the congregation later this month. But more importantly, this section in anxiety can't be divorced from what we just looked at. It's not an accident that right after Jesus tells you not to lay up your treasures on earth, which makes you feel comfortable and secure and free of anxiety, but to lay up your treasures in heaven, which makes you feel nervous. It's not an accident that right after that, Jesus comes in and says, why don't you go for a walk, do a little bird watching, check out a few flowers, and calm yourself down. And notice that I am your good heavenly father. The link is so clear. Do you see it there in verse 25? You cannot serve God in money, verse 24. Therefore, therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. The teaching and anxiety that I've just given is deeply related to what we've been looking at in terms of investing in God's kingdom. And we've been looking at over the last few weeks how that's done by giving to the advance of God's kingdom through the local church, not exclusively, but definitely primarily. So what do I wanna say? Well, I wanna say what I've already been saying and then I wanna say two very specific things. As a pastor, I've been exposed to a lot of fundraising gimmicks over the years. That's actually something Facebook pushes towards me pretty regularly too. They've figured out what I do and all these church marketers have figured out how to come get me. And it's amazing the different things people have. There's high pressure tactics where you get the richest people in your church in the room and you, you give them challenge gifts and this kind of thing. Uh, there's other, uh, Pastor Jeff had a great experience one time where he went to a fundraiser and the person said, now 
write your biggest possible offering down. And they said, just, just add a zero. <laughs> and then they said this, this is killer. Tell me this wouldn't just move your heart. A zero, it means nothing, but it, it just means everything, right? So there it is, you know. Okay, I hate all that stuff. And we've never done any of that kind of garbage uh, in raising funds for the church. Uh, we, we've tried to just speak to you very candidly and very openly about money. And, and from this passage, I would say the ultimate fundraising plan that I could give to Emmanuel Baptist Church to help you if you're having trouble giving is you should go for a walk and you should look at the birds, you should pick some flowers, and you should take some time this week staring at them and just remember the Father's love for you. That's probably the most, that's the best thing that you could do to grow in your generosity towards the kingdom. Now let me speak just to two groups of people quickly about that very fact. First of all, I wanna to speak to our faithful givers. And you know, whenever we talk about giving, people are like, well, you don't wanna make people, feel, people feel, feel guilty. And I'm always like, well, why not? And, 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 and what I mean by that is that when people are guilty, it is a preacher's job to make them feel guilty. Like, fire me now. Now, it's not to drive people by guilt, not at all, not in the least, I hate that. But when people are guilty, your job is to say you're guilty and then to offer them grace and an ability to walk out of that guilt. I mean, that, if that's not ministry, I don't know what is. So I, I wanna first speak to people who I think are not guilty. Not guilty, as best I can tell. We have many faithful givers at Emmanuel. I wanna encourage you, over the last six years, Emmanuel stayed roughly the same size, and our giving has stayed roughly the same. Uh, we did have a little downturn uh, on 2020, but that's, that's an anomaly. Uh, but, but you, over the years, we've seen this relatively same size and this relatively faithful giving. And that's incredible, that's wonderful. That represents so many daily, weekly decisions to trust God, to live free from anxiety, and to give. And I wanna encourage you in that. I also just wanna ask, since we know that our numbers have stayed relatively the same over the last six years, the amount of people who are here, and our giving has stayed radically the same, relatively the same, could you say that your income has also stayed the same? Or is it possible that as income has grown, as you've prospered, that prospering has primarily gone to what you eat and where and where you live. And really there's been a predominant focus on standard of living. And maybe there's a greater concern to give, uh, to, to make sure that you're cared for like the Gentiles than to give to the kingdom of God as it's built through the church. I wanna encourage you if you're a regular faithful giver to Manuel to think carefully about the ways you can prosper God's kingdom whenever God prospers you. To see when God prospers you as an opportunity to invest for rewards and treasures in heaven. I want to deeply encourage you in that matter. I also want to encourage those who are not faithful. 
As we looked carefully, elders and deacons at our giving numbers this week, it's clear that about 25% of you, one of every four people, simply do not give anything at all, zero. You give absolutely nothing to the church. Now you might say, oh, is he counting it right? Do they realize that sometimes a husband gives, but that would mean the wife gives too, and what if the kids remember? We already thought of that. There's no, there's no, we understand that oftentimes you got one person giving uh, for the family, but even once those numbers are taken into account, about a quarter of the people at Emmanuel don't give. And if you're thinking, yikes, that's me, do the elders know? Let me assure you, your secret is safe with God. It's possible, theoretically, that a quarter of the people at Emmanuel are totally devoted to the Lord, they're not consumed with food, clothing, and drink, and they give the widow's might. We don't even notice it on the budget, and God is well pleased. That's possible. That is a, I have to acknowledge that as a theoretical possibility. It's not likely, but it's possible. I want to encourage you to open up your banking app sometime this week and just scroll slowly and ask, Does the, do these expenses indicate a concern primarily with food and drink and clothing? Or do they indicate a primary concern with the advance of God's kingdom? Would you rather eat worse and dress worse and give to God's kingdom? Or is it always gonna be, I will give once I'm well-fed and watered and dressed my best? That is precisely the opposite of the kind of values that Jesus Christ is calling us to. If you scroll through your bank account and find you do always seem to be able to make the coffee, the movie, the meal out, the getaway that you just have to have or then you can't even, I wanna encourage you to radically reorient your life to the words of the kingdom. You say, I have debt. I understand that. At multiple times in our adult life, the medical expenses and other expenses have been higher than the savings or the income, and we've had debt. I have never considered that not a reason not to give. I've never thought that debt released us from our obligation to invest in God's kingdom. Now, you may not be able to give as much as you once did, and I'm not talking about anyone forsaking loans or not making payments. I'm just saying in the midst of those things, don't abandon a commitment to advancing God's kingdom through the church. If the Macedonians can give out of the abundance of their poverty, we can all find ways to give regularly, generously, and sacrificially to laying up treasures in heaven. If you're nervous to give, I'll encourage you towards two things. Take an older Christian who you think is generous and ask them for help in thinking through these things. It's one of the best things you can do. Ask for advice from a brother or a sister. And secondly, go for a walk and notice the care the Father has for you and me. Let's pray. Father, we thank you very much for your liberating truth, Lord Jesus. You are not only a savior, you're a sage, you're full of wisdom. Lord, you know how to take us out of anxiety and into peace. And it's counterintuitive, but help us to follow you. You died for us, you rose again. And so we wanna trust you with everything in this life.
We pray that you would make every member of Emmanuel generous, whether it's a dollar or a million dollars. We pray that you would make your people a people who universally invest in an eternal kingdom. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.